We're going to look for just a few minutes at the last chapter of the Gospel of John. If you'd like to turn there, that's John chapter 21. We're going to focus on verses 9 and following. If you're familiar with the Bible, and I hope you've read it or read a lot of it, then you know that it is filled with a variety of characters. And they come from uh, a multitude of backgrounds. Most of them did not know each other, especially in the Old Testament uh, period. You have some that were wealthy and powerful, uh, some even in royalty, uh, some that are not even named. Uh, some are within days of dying from starvation because of being poor. Some that are very sick, facing uh, a life-threatening disease. Others who are healthy, you have children, you have adults, but what they all have in common is none of them were perfect. And we can relate to them. I, I can relate to them. We see that they were uh, sinners, just like you and me, and they dealt with discouragement, and they dealt with... Uh, sometimes victimizing others, sometimes being the victim. They dealt with circumstances that were very uncertain, sometimes in little, sometimes with a lot. And except of the Lord Jesus Christ, none of them were perfect. And so we're going to look at one today, and that is Peter, the disciple Peter. And we're going to read the passage. I'm going to read it to you here from John chapter 21, verses 9 and following. This is after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. This is during the period when he appeared to many of his followers. Perhaps as many as 2,000 people saw him before he ascended to heaven. And Peter and the others with him have been fishing all night and not caught anything. And then... The Lord Jesus appears on the beach, tells them to cast their nets on the other side, and they catch a multitude of fish. So they've recognized now that it's Jesus. They have arrived on the shore, and Jesus has prepared breakfast. So beginning in verse 9, it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. But Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go, where you do not want to go. Then he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Jesus calls Peter to be a disciple, a disciple. And Peter's life, you might say, once he becomes a disciple, can be summarized in five scenes. And that's what I'll give you now for our moments together. Scene number one was when Jesus called him to be his follower, called him to be a disciple. Now, I'm just going to read to you from various places in the Gospels. I won't tell you where they're from necessarily because you won't have time to get there unless you're a Baptist to find it before I read it. We get our first glimpse of Peter in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. He and his brother Andrew uh, make their livelihood fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And they are partners in a very profitable fishing business, along with James and John. And all this changes when Jesus calls him, calls them to follow him. We find it in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and following, which says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So there is the call to Peter and the others to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. Nothing spectacular, no bolts of lightning, no miracle takes place. But it tells us a lot about this man. In this passage, it tells us he was a fisherman. He would have been down to earth. As the college students say today, he probably was a good hang. You'd like to hang out with him. If he were to be here today, you'd probably say, hey, I kind of like this guy. Uh, he was not among the most educated of his day. He was educated, but he wasn't like the Apostle Paul with having that formal of an education. He, he was not wealthy. He was a hardworking businessman. So most of us could have identified with him. And so when he calls, when Jesus calls him to follow, we don't detect any hesitation, no backward glances. He didn't have a lengthy discussion about the implications to their business if he were to leave. Uh, he... He just walks away, and he follows. How many of us would do that? How many of us would leave a livelihood, even if Peter was thinking this is temporary? Uh, how, how many would be willing to do that? So Peter did. So early in the public ministry of Jesus, he became, Peter became one of the 12 disciples, the closest circle of followers of Jesus, and that group of men would be trained by Jesus in ministry to carry on after he himself was gone. We learn also about Peter from Mark chapter 1, something that many of us fail to recognize. Let me read it to you. As soon, this is later in the chapter, a lot happens in Mark chapter 1. It covers a lot of time and a lot of events. But it says, as soon as they left the synagogue, Jesus had cast a demon-possessed man or a demon out of a man in the synagogue, of all places. Strange that he would be there. They leave there, and it said they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. What's that tell us about Peter? Who has a mother-in-law? Somebody that's married. Then in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, in defending his own credentials, said, Don't we have a right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter. So Peter was married. 
probably had children. So he, he was a family man. We often kind of just visualize these guys as, as single, but that would not have been the case from what we read there. That's scene one, his call. Secondly, the second scene is his leadership. Anytime you have a group of people together, a group like this, especially if we were together and some crisis were to happen, there would be natural leaders that would kind of rise up. Someone would say, well, we need to do this, and we would begin to look toward, hopefully look toward one another, as to who the leaders are. That just happens. Well, that happened with Peter among the disciples. Peter rose to a position of leadership among the followers of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, in Matthew chapter 10, as they list the disciples, it says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Now, the word for first there can mean sequence, like first, second, third, fourth, fifth, but it can also mean prominence. First among the disciples was Peter. And we find in that role that he was bold to ask questions of Jesus that others were not willing to ask, but they were probably all thinking the very things that he asked. In Matthew 18, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Well, he vocalized that. He came forward when the others did not and asked a question like that. He not only asked questions, he answered questions that were brought by, in some cases, antagonists of Jesus. He fielded them for the group. In a sense, he was the spokesman for the disciples. For example, in Matthew 17, it says, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, why did they come to Peter? Because by them observing the disciples, they thought that's the, that's the leader. I mean, that's the guy we need to ask. He's the spokesman for the group. Leonard Ravenhill, who wrote much about revival and prayer years ago, he tells about a group of tourists who were visiting a, a very picturesque village in Europe, not a well-known place, this village, And he said, as they were walking by an elderly man who was sitting beside a fence, one of the tourists turned to this man and in a very patronizing tone said, were any great men born in this village? To which the old man replied, nope, only babies. (laughs) See, leadership is is developed, not, not born so much. Peter developed into the leader. Third scene his transparency and authenticity. So we not only saw his call, we not only see his, his leadership among the disciples, but also his, his transparency to say what he was thinking. Peter would often ask the penetrating questions posed by Jesus. He would answer them when Jesus would pose these to the disciples. Perhaps the prime example is in Matthew 16, which says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, so Jesus is posing this question to all of his disciples, to the group. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, still speaking you plural to the group. Who do you say that I am? 
And then Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus addresses the whole group, and yet it was Peter who was the one who stepped forward with an answer. And as a result of that, Jesus blessed him and changed his name from Simon to Peter, which, as you know, means rock. And Peter was not only not afraid to express himself, along with that, he had the role of being the most rebuked disciple when you read through the Gospels. He was the one that, that Jesus corrected more than the others. We think of Peter often because of his mistakes. But look at how much he was willing to do because he was willing to take a risk. The prime example of this is when Jesus walked on water. The account in Matthew 14 tells us, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Well, he was willing to take a risk. He was willing to, in that case, literally walk on water. Many, many years ago, I, I was attending a basketball game at, at the Coliseum at the University of Alabama. And I had the, um, the program. And in the program, it was giving a lot of stats about the building we were in, about this Coliseum, this basketball arena. It was saying when it was built, how many people could see, be seated there, when was the biggest crowd there, and all this kind of thing. But what caught my eye, and I'm going to date myself with this, it said most points scored in a single game. And it named the points, and it said player, Pistol Pete Maravich. Then the next stat was most shots taken, Pistol Pete Maravich. He was willing to take a risk. You can't score if you don't shoot. And many people won't shoot because they're afraid they'll miss. Peter wasn't afraid to shoot by giving an answer even if he was wrong. Forcing his failure. Many of us here have been through the journey group curriculum. It's a curriculum for small groups that takes three academic years to go through and I've been through that a couple of times with groups of men here at our church. But one of the exercises that you do in, this, in the group discussion is you will take a sheet of paper and graph out your spiritual journey. So, like this. So, for example, a person may say, well, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't grow up knowing anything about Christ, so I was down here. And then, then I heard about the gospel and I believed in Jesus. And then I went through a real dry time, and this lasted, and then now God's real at work in my life, that kind of thing. And it's very fascinating, and it's a great way for people to tell their story. I would imagine if Peter was in one of those groups with us, and we said, Peter, how about graphing out your spiritual walk with God? Show us what it's been like. Without question, 
the bottom point would be his denying Jesus. Now, we find that in Mark chapter 14. You remember the story. They had had the institution of the Lord's Supper with Jesus on the night before he would be betrayed and later crucified. Jesus had changed the Passover meal to the Lord, to what we call the Lord's Supper. And at that meal, Peter had been adamant in front of all the others that he would never deny Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, before the cock crows twice, you're going to do that three times. And uh, Peter basically like swears an oath in front of, front of everybody. It's just in the strongest possible language. I will never do that. Everybody else may run away, but not me. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story, but let me remind you from the text, Mark 14. When Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him and said, you, were, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it and said, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she follows him out there. She said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. So there's a second time. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. They recognized his accent. And he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, it could be among us, or that some of us here, have, have committed sins against God, knowingly committed them, that we believe have rendered us useless to God. You may be thinking, no, I don't think that. Well, good. But some of us may be saying, yeah, if everybody knew what I'd done, uh, God ain't going to use me. I, he can't use me, given what I've done. But have you denied Jesus like Peter did? What we might predict would happen after such a public crash like this with Peter, discouragement, maybe throwing in the towel, maybe a desire to die, maybe take his own life. I mean, this is a, this is a major failure in, in that context that I just read to you. But sometimes it helps to see things from the other side. So Peter goes from the comments at the Last Supper to I'll never deny you, even though everybody else may. They may all run away, but not me. To the depths of his own sin. And it said he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, he, he felt the weight of this, what he had done. But sometimes when we have something and lose it, then we appreciate it more when we regain it. I've mentioned an incident to you before with a baseball pitcher. Although his professional career ended with some legal troubles of which he was shown not to be guilty, but he still kind of tarnished and he's never been in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's Roger Clemens. He's a great major league pitcher for 20 years. 
And he starred early in his career in one of the all-star games. Now, for those who don't follow baseball, you have the American League, you have the National League, and then even though they all played for their teams, like he played at that time for the Boston Red Sox, they'll pick all-stars and they'll play uh, in an all-star game. And when they would do so, Roger Clemens was to pitch in that all-star game. But being in the American League, they had a strange rule at that time called the designated hitter rule. They, had, they still have it, and the National League has adopted it now. So all the professional teams have designated hitters. For the, again, for those that don't follow baseball, that just means when it was time for the pitcher to come up and bat, since most of them are so bad at batting because their focus is on pitching, you'd think it'd be the other way around. But they have a designated hitter, a real good hitter, that will come into the game just to bat for the pitcher but not play in the outfield in the, or the infield. So the pitcher stays in the game. You with me? All right. I know you're not. I lost you with that. But Roger Clemens comes up to bat, and he'd not batted for years because he was a pitcher in the American League, and they didn't have to bat. So he comes up to bat, and on the pitcher's mound is the great pitcher Dwight Gooden. And Roger Clemens steps into the batter's box, and Roger and Dwight, Dwight Gooden releases a fastball right down the middle about 100 miles an hour, and he swings and misses. And then he turns around to, to the catcher, to Gary Carter, and he said, wow, let me ask you something. Do my pitches look like that? And Gary Carter said, you betcha. They look just like that. And he stepped back in the batter's box, two more pitches, two swings, nothing but air, and he's out of there. But listen to what he said. He went out and pitched three scoreless innings, but he said that batting experience changed his life because he said he realized how overpowering a good fastball is. He was not used to seeing that from the batter's perspective, and it made him bold. And he said this, it changed my view of pitching, and I had confidence from then on like I had never had before. Sometimes we forget what we have going for us. And it may take losing it momentarily before we know how much it meant to us. So let me tell you how I think that happened with Peter in scene five of Peter's life, or what we know. And that is his restoration to ministry. And that brings us to John 21. The beginning of the restoration is heard even at the tomb when the women went there on that first Easter morning and the angel said, go back and tell his disciples and Peter. <laughs> Isn't that a, it's just kind of tucked there in the Gospels, but that's where you see it. That's the beginning of the restoration. The turnaround and the restoration actually happens here in John 21. So Peter now, he jumps out of the boat when they recognize it's the Lord because of the big... Uh, catch of the fish. He swims to the shore. He gets there before the rest of the disciples. Jesus is there. We read what happened, you know, the, breakfast, the fish being cooked and the breakfast offered and Jesus asking him these questions. Do you love me? So once he's on the shore, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Even as he had denied him three times, now he gives him three opportunities to reaffirm his love for him. And he restores him to ministry by saying, I want you to tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. So he reestablishes P 
Peter's leadership in the kingdom ministry. Well, what happened? Well, through God's grace in the days that followed, in Acts chapter 1, it was Peter who took the lead in choosing a disciple to take Judas's place. In Acts chapter 2, it was Peter who became the spokesman for the first evangelistic outreach at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 3, it's Peter who with John healed a lame man at the temple. In Acts chapter 4, it's Peter who defies the Sanhedrin, refusing to be silent about Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, it's, it's Peter who presides over the grim task of dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. And it was Peter who dealt decisively with the deceit of Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. And then it's Peter whom God sends to reach out to the Gentile, Cornelius, after God revealed to him that the gospel would extend universally to all people. This was the man that God used to pen two of the letters in the New Testament, first and second Peter. And he was a man who could identify with failure just like you and me. So I close with one point of application, and that is this. Failure in the past does not nullify effectiveness in the future. Failure in the past does not nullify effectiveness in the future. What a loss it would be if Peter had thrown in the towel and just said, I can't do this, I'm, I'm an embarrassment, I'm finished. What if he had focused all of his emotion on the event of that failure rather than seeing the bigger picture of what God was going to do in the world? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that any of us who are engaged in any kind of ministry are pulled from two directions. One, we see our complete inadequacy on a personal level. But the other pull is that we see the great need and we can't walk away from it. The need is too great. Obviously, Peter saw that. God never wastes tests. He never wastes them. And you may be being tested right now in a way you never have before. God doesn't waste that. And the very trial you are now in may be the very beginning of a ministry he has for you in your life. Let me close with a few Verses that remind us what God says about past sins repented of. In Isaiah 1, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 44, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the clarity you give us in your word of what you do with our sins confessed before you. You not only forgive them, but you erase them and cast them as far as the east is from the west. We pray that you might Give us sensitivity to your spirit in leading our lives to conform us more and more to the image of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.